Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. We're racking them up now and um, never one to shy away from a controversial topic. We've got quite a good one for you in this episode. So I'm talking to Jack Badams today. Jack, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you very much for having me on. This is something I'm, I'm really excited to talk about. I know. We started uh, waffling away about it on Instagram recently, didn't we? And uh, we thought this would be a great podcast episode. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that yeah, so, so I've been reading about recently and, and raised the topic on Instagram and had some great feedback from people. And then you just so happened to to see something that was pertinent to this topic and we got talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So for anyone who um, is not familiar with Jack, Jack's a naturalist, an ornithologist and a bird ringer. Um, His Instagram has some amazing photos of birds in the hand um, when he's doing his ringing. But as a a full-time job, Jack is a full-time wildlife researcher for the BBC Spring Watch, Autumn Watch and Winter Watch um, programs. So really, really interesting um, career. Um, And the the topic that we're going to talk about, Jack, today uh, for our listeners is about non-native and invasive species, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's going to be, I suppose, more focused around, I think the the fascinating thing about introduced species is that they often polarize viewpoints. So you get a lot yeah. of a lot of people who don't want to see any harm come to an animal and uh gray squirrels i think you know conceptualize it perfectly a lot of people are very much against doing anything bad to gray squirrels or or non-native species yeah. whilst a lot of people on the conservationist naturalist spectrum you know absolutely loathe invasive species um and i suppose this conversation here is is more trying to look at it a bit more practically and and challenging the idea that all non-native species are intrinsically bad. Um, and it's yeah. based on uh, a book I read recently, which really challenged this idea and challenged my beliefs because I was very much in the kind of classic conservationist camp that I was very much against this idea of introduced species and thought of them all straight away as they must be bad and they've all, you know, they've got to prove themselves as being good really apart from a negative basis. Coming in here and ruining our ecosystems, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, yeah, the book really challenged some of those, some of those beliefs. So uh, I raised it on Instagram and got a really interesting response. Um, And then you happened to see your edible dormouse in the children. Yeah, yeah. So I was up in the Chilterns last week having a, a well-deserved break and <laughs> getting out of my house for the first time in four months, five months. Um, and yeah, I heard this weird noise in a tree in a churchyard as I walked back from uh, the village pond where I was doing a bit of bat detecting. And I was convinced it was, oh, that's definitely like a Tony Alchick or something with this kind of, um, I guess, kind of wheezing, kind of squeaky call in a tree. And uh, I crept up and kept my torch out off. And then when I shone a light up, this little, what I can only describe as it looked like a little sugar glider or a flying squirrel ran on a wire over my head into the next tree. I was like, oh, it's the infamous Chiltern's Gliss Gliss or edible dormouse, which is an introduced species. And I'd never seen it before. And then I think you commented on it. And then that led to a big discussion on 
invasives and introduced and and non-natives, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that one does that species does capture some of the you know it's exciting seeing something like that. It's it's kind of parakeet. It's mandarin duck. It's something that's exotic, something that's quite, quite exotic. Yeah, yeah, being seen in the British countryside and. And when we think about, I suppose, because uh, I talked to a few people about it and I said, you know, dormice, and they were like, oh, yeah, I know what dormice are. There's a big difference between this edible dormouse or fat dormouse, it's sometimes called, or gliss gliss, and our common or hazel dormouse, which is like one of our rarest mammals and, yeah. and really declining, um, you know. And actually, the interesting thing, and we'll get to this, I suppose, the kind of legal implications um, of controlling these some of these species can be quite complex because in the case of Gliss Gliss, I read that uh, they're both legally protected and classed as vermin because <laughs> some of the EU legislation around protection of the Gliridae, the Dormouse family, um, basically lumps them in with uh, the hazel or common Dormouse in Europe because it's not as common in Europe. Uh, so it's kind of only licensed pest controllers now can actually um, trap and kill them. Householders can't. And they're causing big problems in, in people's houses and lofts and um, chewing wires and all sorts. And they're seen very much as a pest, but you can't control them unless you're licensed. So it's a bit of an odd situation. Yeah. And and there's so many, when it, when it comes to introduced species, there's so many of these murky waters, which are the ones that I think, suppose I find so fun to set sail on. They're the bit, they're the conservation questions that i really really enjoy the the ones where there is no black and white and many shades of good i yep i like i like a gray area myself (laughs) (laughs) good i think we'll get on well then yeah so we'll get into it in a second but maybe the the best place to start is just a bit of uh terminology because um i think clarifying like you know what what do we mean when we say introduced versus naturalized versus non-native versus invasive because those four things are quite different, aren't they? Yeah. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about kind of introduced versus naturalized species. Yeah. So introduced species are the, we all know what the native species are, although even there we can talk about, you know, where you draw your line, which we might get onto. But um, yeah, introduced species are are species that are introduced via what we deem a non-natural process, which is generally us, which is, yeah. Either through uh, purposeful releases because we're trying to establish a, a nice species in the environment uh, or whether it's accidental escapes. Um, they're generally seen as the introduced species that we've put in there. Um, yeah. If they are, in general, when they become naturalized, it's because you have a self-sustaining population that has kind of integrated itself within the ecosystem and people argue about whether it's you know, the degrees of effects it can have on that ecosystem, but largely something like a mandarin duck, uh, a little owl, a certainly naturalized species that were introduced, but now they're seen as kind of part of our flora and fauna in this country. Um, yeah. When they start having overwhelming negative effects, that's generally when the term invasive comes in. So an invasive species is one that is then classed as having negative effects. Um, to an ecosystem or to a particular species. Yeah. And um, also the thing that I kind of hadn't, uh, didn't kind of take into consideration so much is also the economic impact of some of these species um, can be 
you know, pretty significant. I think I, I read earlier um, a stat that um, every year invasive species, the cost to the UK is £1.7 billion per year. Mm. Um, so it's not just that they're, you know, altering ecosystems or maybe outcompeting or even killing, you know, some of our native um, species, but there actually can be a big economic impact in terms of the damage they do or and the consequences of them. Yeah. Um, to like waterways or industry or anything like that. They can. Um, um, and actually, this is where I'm going to bring in one of the first things that I um, I read from the book. And I should mention the book, really, because I might mention yeah. case studies from it. But um, this book is called The New Wild by a chap called Fred Pierce. And it's been out for a while. And I read it, I think, like I said earlier, because it it, it was going to challenge my viewpoints on, on non-native species and this whole debate. And he does actually talk about the cost. And he talks about, it? yeah, so he talks about, First of all, how tricky it is to estimate cost. And one thing he goes into in particular is that there's this figure that's often used as the global estimate of invasive species and their impact on the economy that's put at $1.4 trillion, which is low. Right. And he did a really interesting thing where he tracked it back, basically, and found out where that figure came from. So I think it was being quoted by... um, it was the UN or something like this it was being quoted by so he tracked it back and he found source of the paper that was the 2001 paper that was extrapolating the figure from data from six countries so it was the UK Australia Brazil South Africa India and the US and um, there's some really interesting things because obviously trying to put a cost on some of these effects is really quite difficult and there are some questionable things when you start talking about the cost. So one of them was to pull out one from this $1.4 trillion. One of them was about rats. Um, and it was talking about the effects of rats across all these six countries. Was They were said to be responsible for $56 billion a year's worth of damage. But half of that $56 billion, the estimate had been taken from India, where it was estimated that rats eat their way through $10 of grain a year. but the black rat is of Indian origin, and the brown rat came from China. So yourself to safe to assume that it's always been in that area. So there's okay. some of these stats that are then just referenced and referenced and referenced, and it goes higher up the chain. And one of them was yeah. really interesting, I thought, and it was an undisputed invader to to the US, which was feral cats. Okay, and there's no doubting that feral cats have been there. And there was a, a figure that's that going to be another uh, another podcast episode. I think. Uh, if I, I know <laughs> the, the, the figure that was put on feral cats as a, a non-native invasive species cost to the US was seventeen billion dollars. And then when you actually read into it, that figure largely comes from the fact that the author of the paper put a value of thirty dollars on each bird that a feral cat is killing, largely based off of the bird watching, shooting economy, and theoretically what that bird might equate to that economy right and you just when you start reading about some of these stats i think it it starts to question whether you know we see these big numbers but if you really read into them some of them are maybe on quite shaky groundings and particularly in the u.s a lot of the cats uh, the birds that cats are going to be killing are non-native starlings sparrows and pigeons and sparrows and things yeah do they get kind of a credit back for killing the non-native species. So <laughs> you have to do some um, ecological system services. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's the that's the thing is straight off the bat we see these big numbers and whether it's about extinction rates or whether it's about the cost to the economy, 
But already, I think when you start drilling down into it, there's some bones of contention that you might be able to pull out there. Okay, yeah. So no doubt there is an economic cost, but what you're saying is a lot of it can be kind of very hypothetical and sometimes kind of not worked out very well or, or kind of overstated in, in some cases. Yeah, and perhaps it's it's our knee-jerk reaction to the whole invasive species being bad thing that we're looking for those things in you know yeah. I want to state straight off the back I'm definitely not going to be arguing that there is no negative environmental impact or economic impact to invasive species but I think yeah. it's just it's just questioning as you say it's gray area isn't it yeah yeah sometimes yeah and getting back then to I guess what I um kind of meant more so than naturalized in terms of like what happens to them after they get here but there are like human introductions deliberate or accidental of certain species that can cause harm but then there's also natural introductions so surprising things like um you know collared doves for example Mm -hmm. do we class them as native or did we class them as native in the 1950s when they arrived here from asia because their population boomed and they moved across europe so sometimes you can get non-native species that arrived here of their own accord and then that causes more argument as well doesn't it because people are like well they got here themselves that's just nature that's that's not a um an invasive species now but they can still change the ecosystem they can still have detrimental effects even if they got here of their own accord yeah so kind of again muddies the water of like what, what are we dealing with and what term do we allocate to this species over this one and sometimes if it's like it almost seems like if humans did it, it's automatically bad. But if the animal got here of its own will or with a little human help by hitching a ride, then that's evolution. You know, that's the kind of argument you hear sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. And and yeah, the collared dove, the cattle egret, all those kind of species, I think really uh, Chetty's warblers as well. You know, they've all moved here in countless ways. Yeah, in our yeah. in our generation in living memory um yeah but no one's you know no one's arguing that we should get rid of them all um and i think and with human introductions as well some of our most favorite plants are brought here by people they're archaeophytes so they were brought here by iron age people or they were brought here even earlier so things like field poppies and sweet chestnuts and they were all brought here by ancient people and it's when do we draw that line between something being naturally brought here even within the context of being human when do we consider the fact that a seed might have got stuck into a iron age person's fur coat and then brought over here um, versus when did the romans start planting plants for you know herbs and for food and And when did the normans you know introduce rabbits from the iberian peninsula for food for meat you know and Everyone considers the rabbit very much a, an iconic British mammal, but it's not. No. Uh, you know, it, it is an introduced species, isn't it? Yeah, and with hares as well. And, uh, you know, now we're getting worried that there's declines in hares and the same with little owls as well. They're a, a favourite species of many people and they're not yeah. they're not native to the UK. But my no. question would be, you know, does it matter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it is so um, so divisive, Jack, um, when we talk about, you know, it's not natural or it's it's uh, humans interfering? Do you think it's because people are anxious or uptight about how much damage we've done? And it's like if we've also added, you know, X number of new species into the pot, we're, we've just gone too far and, and we need to stop. Yeah, I think 
I think that's a I think that's a really good point. And I think we're I think we conservationists with naturalists, we're all so protective because we're seeing what's happening to the world and we're seeing that the fact that our environments and our ecosystems are in a mess and we're so protective of, of keeping them as perfect or as healthy as we can because you certainly you could argue there's not many perfect ones out there anymore so we're interested in really trying to sustain them and i think non-native invasive species are just seen as another threat and i think if you are uh, anyone who wants to protect wildlife we you know we don't need another threat so yeah i always think it's funny how within the kind of conservation you know mindset often you know the people are very very when it comes to politically thinking very liberal but when it comes to invasive species it's often the complete opposite end of the spectrum um it, it is i think and i think it's just born out of that feeling of wanting to protect and wanting to protect our environments to be as natural as they could be um but then you could argue how many of our nature reserves how many of our wild spaces are actually in any way natural to what they would have been you know, before we turned up and started having such a major effect. That's the thing. And I think even, you know, some of the species of, of UK wildlife that we're most concerned about or have experienced the most kind of catastrophic declines are ones that wouldn't have naturally been that abundant without human intervention, human interference in the landscape. So, you know, traditional farming models, for example, before the, the agricultural revolution and industrial revolution, where the, the land was nurtured and um, cultivated quite um, extensively and, and gently in a way without machinery and things. A lot of farmland birds and, and, mm. and wildlife thrived in those systems that wouldn't have thrived before we started becoming, you know, agriculturalists. So it's kind of like, the shifting baseline syndrome argument again of, you know, just because you and your parents and your grandparents remember a time when there was corn buntings and yellow hammers and lapwings in every field, actually, that wasn't like that, you know, several hundred years ago or several thousand years ago. There, yeah. were, there was a whole different suite of, of animals and plants that were thriving with even less intervent, human intervention on the land. So actually thinking about it as, you know, the way we've shaped our landscape has decided what species are kind of favoured or do well and, and don't do well. And I think the kind of general rule with the problematic non-natives or introduced species, they're the ones that actually adapt to human environment and are really adaptable and kind of can get along in, in a variety of conditions rather than being those specialised ones that we often try and cling on to and try and save at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big thoughts when it comes to thinking about introduced species is, is it the species that's the problem or is it the environment and the ecosystem? Yeah. A healthy environment, a healthy ecosystem with all its trophic levels, with its predators, with many, you know, lots of niches filled, that's going to be more robust to those introduced species. Those introduced species are either not going to be able to get a foothold in that environment because the ecosystem's so healthy, or they're going to slip into it and they're going to become, I suppose, like the little owl has been to Britain, they're going to become part of that ecosystem. Um, it's interesting. I was reading about. There's the um, the ancient Polish forest that I can never pronounce the name of, Belsha or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. And they've got uh, a few introduced species that are starting to creep in there, one of them being raccoon dogs, 
kind of coming into oh, yes. Asia. And I was talking to somebody who um, does work out there and asking him if there's, a, you know, many negative effects of those in the forest yet on ground nesting birds like wood warblers and things like that. And he said, based on the studies that they've done there, there doesn't really seem to be any negative effects, but that's because they've got wolves there still and they can exert yeah. this top-down pressure onto this non-native species that keeps them as more of a functional part of the ecosystem as something that's going to, rather than something that's going to overwhelm it and break it. Yeah, yeah. And I've talked about this on previous podcasts and you listened to um, the deer one I did, which was maybe a little bit controversial about culling deer and the fact that four out of our six species of deer are non-native and the problems they cause without predators and things. But again, we've created a very altered landscape within a few generations, which actually makes it very difficult for some of our wildlife to cling on. Yeah. Um, for example, you know, classic example of um, meso predators like foxes and crows, the corvid family that kind of are generalists, adaptable, thrive in a kind of a, you know, human altered landscape and don't have many natural predators of themselves because we've wiped them all out basically. Yeah. Um, then you do get intense predation pressure on ground nesting birds, for example, and yeah. stuff like that. So I think when you're spot on, like we we're talking about things coming into a massively altered and degraded environment already. Um, and it can be, you know, certain high profile um, species or, or introductions can actually lead to catastrophic loss of, of something that is, you know, very well regarded. The classic one being the whole red squirrel, gray squirrel yeah. debate. It's not a debate to many people. Many people, as you say, are just, we need to obliterate gray squirrels. We need to clear them. We need to um, exterminate them so that we can get our red squirrels back. But actually, you know, if, if you are totally honest, we're never going to get rid of gray squirrels now, are we? No. And gray squirrels is a really, a really good, I think, species to talk about because it does polarize people so much. You get people that absolutely love them and you get people that really do loathe them and want them all gone. Um, and I, yeah. I definitely, I think, you know, who wouldn't love to see red squirrels reclaiming back the UK? Who wouldn't love that? That would be amazing. But I think we've got to look at it practically. Like you say, it's never going to happen. They're here to stay. Is it worth all that time and money fighting the grey squirrels? There's these fantastic yeah. projects going on, you know, that are holding on to these pockets of red squirrels. But I think sometimes you have to look at it in the, the cold, hard light of day. And you think red squirrels, they're not a rare species. They're found across Europe. Uh, yeah. A lot of species that's in, you know, they're not going extinct anytime soon. Is it just better to focus on reestablishing predators of grey squirrels, allow goshawks to recolonize, pine martin, so that grey yeah. Yeah, squirrel populations then don't become too large and exert the influence, the negative influence that they can have, which is, you know, tree damage, predating birds' nests. Although even with birds' nests, there's no strong links between any bird declines and squirrel predation. We know that they do predate birds' nests, but there's no studies that are linking the decline of any one species or any one group of species to the fact that we've got gray squirrels there. And yeah. I think I think the question is, we look at it from a very human perspective and i think the uh, the question is is does nature care what color our squirrels are does nature yeah. care as long as there's something that's filling that role in the environment gray squirrels will disperse seeds they'll disperse acorns they do sometimes chew the tops off them but they'll still disperse acorns they'll still be food for goshawks and pine martins 
if we were to click our fingers and get rid of every grey squirrel in the country right now, red squirrels would certainly come back into large parts of it. But would we ever get them in our urban centres where we get grey squirrels now? Or are we then just creating a world where we have less squirrels across our landscape and actually are then negatively harming the biodiversity because we're moving, removing one of those niches. So I think it's those mm. questions that even to, with a species that's so black and white in people's heads, you can throw up these questions that, that I think challenge those ideas quite sensibly, I think. Yeah. And I think there, another thing that actually we won't, we've, we can touch on is the kind of romanticism of it. So I think actually it tends to be quite a um, emotional response and a kind of a remorseful response that like, wouldn't it be terrible if we lost our lovely, cute, gorgeous little native red squirrel? And it's, you know, kind of, you can, you can argue the toss and, and bring in those kind of discussions about look red squirrels they don't have the habitat they need everywhere and um greys are filling a gap that the red squirrels you know won't fill anyway in some places and um does nature really care you know all those kind of things but actually i think for a lot of people it is this um kind of nostalgia or romanticism around um caring for or wanting the kind of protect the heritage or or the kind of uh I don't know, yeah, the British fleet of mammals because they are ours and, and there's a bit of a there's a bit of a kind of a stronger bond, I guess, with those species. I think you're right. And I think the whole I can't argue against anyone what for wanting to protect our wildlife for natural history or cultural reasons. And uh, you know, if I woke up tomorrow and there was an announcement that all red squirrel conservation was suddenly gonna stop and we were gonna allow grey squirrels to, you know, just have their way with the whole country, I'd be absolutely devastated. So I'm certainly not advocating that this is something we do i'm just raising the thought of you know yeah race girls are perhaps as bad as we thought don't worry jack we're not going to paint you in this podcast as like <laughs> the big bad anti-conservationist who's like let everything go to shit <laughs> the arbiter of invasive species yeah it's like people will be you know turning on you and <laughs> getting sent hate mail by um by the red squirrel fans <laughs> but no i think you're you're doing a good job and that's what we're that's why why we're doing this podcast is just to kind of tease apart some of the maybe flawed logic and some of the arguments and some of the um issues around like how we term one thing in a negative light and how we turn a blind eye to other things so yeah and can i quickly can I quickly mention himalayan balsam here as well yeah go for it. this is another one that when i did my little story on my, my little kind of feature i suppose on my instagram page that was about this this non-native species debate yeah. one of the two, two species came up and it was largely gray squirrels and himalayan balsam um and i did some reading into himalayan balsam too and i found this study this 2006 study that talked about the fact that you know we associate balsam with suppressing our river habitats our riparian habitats and stopping you know creating these blanket monocultures that stop diversity of these riparian habitats but that's actually a suboptimal habitat for balsam its native range in the himalayas is 2000 meters above sea level um, and if you get spring and autumn flooding that destroys the seeds and the plants of balsam and the best way of actually controlling the spread of it is to decrease eutrophication which thereby permits the better adapted local vegetation that gets outgrown by balsam uh, to rebound naturally and once again, it's going back to that idea that um, it's not 
the balsam that's the issue. If we had much healthier river ecosystems that didn't have as much runoff from farmland that causes eutrophication. I was just going to say, maybe if you explain yeah, what eutrophication is. Um, for some- yeah, so eutrophication is because we, we, we put so, much, so many fertilizers onto the land to create a more optimal growing conditions for our crops we're putting so many artificial fertilizers on large parts of the land and when we get high levels of rainfall that washes off into the water courses um, and then that plant food essentially has its way with the water courses and the plants that are living in there so you can get big algal blooms you can get big stands of plants that benefit from this balsam being one of them whereas if you actually got watercourses that were less loaded with nutrients then you would get a, a much more of a matrix of habitats a mosaic of native plants holding their own right exactly and if you then if you then add something like beavers to the mix which then create these really dynamic riparian habitats that are constantly shifting then something like balsam might not be able to get as much of a uh, a foothold in it and i think even with even with that, I, I think I was walking by, I actually went, I went to see the Devon beavers a few weeks ago and there were stands of balsam there. But as we were sat waiting for the beavers, they were absolutely humming with pollinators. And along the bank, you're also walking past blanket stands of flag iris and bulrush. And I think it raises the question of why is a blanket stand of one species better than a, a blanket monoculture? of another just because one's native and one's not it's taking a step back and it's evaluating them on a species by species basis because something like yellow flag iris you know it looks wonderful but it's got a relatively short flowering season it's not got as high nectar count for pollinators as something like balsam does yeah balsam all feeds elephant hawk moth caterpillars why is a is a monoculture of one better or worse, rather, than a monoculture of another. Yeah, so- good point. I mean, I went a few days ago to check our, our local site for hobbies nesting, and we did a, a good bit of balsam bashing in a nature reserve we created nearby, but just outside the nature reserve along along the river is just covered in balsam. But I noticed the same thing. It's absolutely alive with bees, Yeah. Um, you know, feeding on the flowers, and the flowers last a long, long time as well. So we're talking all about, you know, help our pollinators and, and that it can be hard to argue sometimes that if it's invasive, it's all bad. There are beneficial effects of some um, invasive or, or kind of non-native species, aren't there? Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's, I think maybe the, the hardest pill to swallow, I think, is that actually some species can benefit an environment when they've never been there before. And I don't know whether balsam, I'm not saying balsam is that species. I'm saying it potentially has that quality. Yeah. But I think what is interesting perhaps to, to chuck in now is, you know, I know you're very interested in rewilding, and it is the whole bison coming to yeah. Kent thing. Um, are they, we know are they native? Bison. Were they once native? Yeah, exactly. I think the, the idea that they are, and this takes us back to, what is native and when it comes to britain we often i think the purists will often use it as when britain became an island and we were cut off from mainland europe which is around seven thousand eight thousand years ago once once the ice age had ended but we were left relatively compared to europe relatively species poor there were a few things that didn't make that jump over and whether bison were still here after that land bridge had closed is highly debated and when you look into it i think you know i think it's on pretty shaky ground but there is no doubt that bison create very dynamic 
habitats that are great for biodiversity. Now, I would argue it doesn't, you know, therefore it doesn't matter if they were native or not. They have a positive impact on biodiversity. So it's great to see them being used in these kind of projects. But I did see response from people on Twitter when the project was announced that, um, you know, were adamant that they weren't a native species and that classing this as a kind of rewilding endeavor was heresy. Well, I was going to say that, you know, a cynic might look at it as um, just a really good PR job because it did hit the headlines and, um, you know, got people talking about restoring ecosystems and, and allowing nature to recover and things. So whatever your views on it, uh, it did a pretty good job of, of throwing rewilding into the spotlight for a week or two, didn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it certainly did. It was all my timeline was just full of it and mainly arguments with because I try and I try and balance my timeline so that I've got people in the conservation side and people that are perhaps on the other side of the fence. You're not, still uh, very you're not living in an echo chamber. <laughs> exactly. And and but that does mean that when you have something like this pop up, you're just watching the arguments days on end. Yeah. I know I was the same. Interesting to your point there about, um, you know, the Ice Age closing off the land bridge between the UK and um, mainland Europe. Similar obviously happened at the same time between Ireland and the UK and continental Europe. And we're even more um, species poor in Ireland than um, than Britain. Um, I talk to people over here, I've lived here for over 10 years now. And I talk to people about the fact that we don't have moles and we don't have tawny owls and we didn't have woodpeckers until very recently when they naturally colonized themselves by flying across the Irish Sea. Um, but loads of stuff that isn't there. Um, you know, the diversity of wildlife is much poorer, especially at the kind of lower levels of the of the food chain, just because many of them didn't make it across that land bridge yeah. before um, before the seas rose. But interesting, and I think you brought it up when we had a little chat about this last week. One of the, um, again, benefits, uh, if we just try and look at it in terms of um, species of concern, one of the benefits we've had in Ireland of a um, non-native introduced species is that uh, a little shrew species uh, got brought over, they think from the horticultural industry, a greater white toothed shrew. And we only have pygmy shrew in Ireland. We don't have the water shrew or the common shrew that, that um, exists here. And actually, this shrew was discovered from um, people studying barn owls and dissecting their pellets and realizing that there was a slightly larger jawbone with slightly different dentition than the normal pygmy shrew. And then they did some trapping studies and found that actually this shrew is spreading out in the Midlands of Ireland. And as a result... Uh, threatened birds like barn owls and hen harriers and other raptors are increasing in number. So all the bird people are like, great, we've got a new shrew and it's feeding all of our raptors and owls. But all the uh, mammal fans and the pygmy shrew uh, kind of people, and I use that facetiously, but are saying that this greater white-toothed shrew is actually predatory on pygmy shrews and that's our native shrew and, um, you know, it's going to have a detrimental effect. The studies aren't in, the data doesn't... Uh, supported at the moment but that's the fear at least so it depends what camp you're in sometimes how yeah you, is it is an is an introduction uh beneficial or otherwise who's it beneficial to and that's that's interesting that's a really good example that because i think it, it's it's a good example of perhaps the the knee-jerk reaction to um immediately de- thinking that something might be bad and i've got a, a similar example when i moved down to bristol yeah. um you walk yeah. around the kind of clifton suspension bridge area and basking on the rocks you have common wall lizards oh, which yes. are these pretty big bright green lizards um and 
on a sunny day, if you know, it feels like the Mediterranean when you're walking along there, and then you see these giant lizards climbing up the walls. And I was amazed when I first saw them. Yeah. And once I identified what species it was, I did some reading up because I had no idea they were in Britain. And one of the first things that popped up was a, a news article that was talking about um, a worry that these species were here. And you can find them in various parts around southern England. Yeah. Um, that they were here and that they may negatively affect on some of our resident species. But you think, I mean, first of all, they're in they're mainly in very urban areas um, because that's where they tend to have been released from. But also this is a species that cohabits with all of our native species on the continent. Right. And you think... Well, if it does that there, why would it have a negative impact here? Yeah. So yeah. The, the the wall lizard was an example to me that highlighted that there is that immediate knee-jerk reaction that it is an introduced species, therefore it must, for some reason, have a negative effect on our native species. But actually, you know, just over the water in France and the rest of Europe, it's cohabiting with those species absolutely fine. And it's whether we... I suppose it comes down to whether conservation is about increasing biodiversity or keeping things locked as they are. And I think in certain in areas, in very uh, areas of high endemism, so areas where you have species that can't be found anywhere else, like Madagascar and yeah. Sulawesi and Hawaii. Island I think it's, population yeah, things and yeah. It's very much about keeping those places. You know, as yeah, as unique as they are, because they've had some fantastic things there. But I think when you throw in Britain, Ireland, I think you're, you know, the question has to be, I think, do we want as biodiverse a landscape that we can get, perhaps that replicates more biodiverse areas in Europe, or do we want to maintain stuff that yeah. You know, happened 7,000 years ago when we became an island, when actually it, there, there were less species than there are on the European mainland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's come on to, in a second, the kind of extreme example from the book that you talked to me about, which um, is another island story, but maybe kind of shows the benefits of, of creating new biodiversity where it wasn't before. But before we do that, we talked about kind of, you know, harmful examples or examples that are perceived as harmful, like grey squirrel, Himalayan balsam, you know, there's very strong arguments to say that these things should have been eradicated from our environment when it was feasible to do so and probably isn't any feasible any longer. And then we've talked about some beneficial effects, which can be quite surprising of something new moving in. But what about, and you've touched on it a few times, the neutral effects. So where maybe if you explain the concept of what is an ecological niche and how do some introduced species just slot into one that uh, is there to be taken advantage of and they don't seem to have any detrimental effect or even kind of positive effect. Yeah, so ecological niche is the idea that in, in any ecosystem, whether it's a big pristine ecosystem or whether it's you know me now sat in my flat looking over Bristol, any ecosystem has roles there that animals can fill that they can utilise. Um, so let's take something like a woodland and you've got species that are going to pollinate various different plants and that they're going to have lots of insects that have maybe got different mouth parts to pollinate different sorts of plants and you can get really really specific with niches um you know you can have butterflies are a good example because they have caterpillars that only specifically eat one species of plant um, yeah. or you can have very broad niches you know we spoke about things like crows and foxes earlier which their niche is that the generalists these yeah generalist meso predators that are 
you know, they've got a decent level of intelligence. They've got mouth parts or beaks that can allow them to exploit lots of different food types. And ecosystems are built out of animals that fulfill these different roles. And yeah. sometimes those roles are empty when they are. So I, th- I think a really good example for me is little owls. So yeah. in Britain, we had our native species of owls, which were tawny owls, long-eared owls, short-eared owls. Uh, I think I'm missing one. Barn owls. that's one. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then somebody introduced little owls from Europe. And they brought them over, and we didn't have a species of owl that was small, nested in small little crevices, and predominantly ate insects. And also, like, big kind of pastoral landscapes, I suppose a bit like the barn owl, but inhabited a different niche. It doesn't really feed on as many small rodents. as No, it's an insect specialist, isn't it? So that, that, that role in the ecosystem was there. And I think similar with a little egret as well, we've got that arrived naturally, potentially recolonized yeah. the the history of it a little bit um a little bit murky but you know we'd got our gray heron we'd got bittens fairly large herons that wade quite deep into the water and can tackle quite big fish but then we've got the little egret that came in that operates in the shallows and he's hoovering up all those little fish so that's a niche there which means it's not competing with any already established member of that ecosystem and it just slots in and it just becomes part of the biodiversity of any area and i think um you know little owls little egrets it does help their cause that i think that you know people didn't go looking for them the bad news story because they're both like beautiful and enigmatic little birds right yeah Whereas I think there's probably other examples that aren't so widely known. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but things that are very just inconsequential and have come and occupied a niche and no one really knows about. Like, you know, there's a population of scorpions living in the yeah. dock walls down on the south coast of England that no one really knows about. They're not really doing any harm. Yeah. They've just slotted in there where they can. Um, there's um, New, Ze- well, New Zealand stick insects in, uh, oh, yeah. in kind of Cornwall, Devon area. They, in, most people yeah. don't know that we've got now i think there's three species um of stick insects that now are completely naturalized on the south coast and yeah you know we never had anything that filled that role naturally so they've just slotted in yeah yeah and then you know i guess things that moved more towards the the negative or could have you know negative consequences that are still filling a niche that is there and they don't have competitors really muntjac mm. deer being a good example very small um kind of solitary deer that lives in kind of the lower scrub um vegetation layer of woodlands and things yeah it's not competing with our other deer and it's doing quite well but then you know if you're a um a forester or woodland management you don't really like it because it can do damage to the the understory and clear out your kind of saplings and and new generation of trees yeah which it certainly does and i i think that harks back to the is it a question of uh, the species or is it a question of the density and the fact that um, we don't, you know, there are no... We don't have predators. Yeah, and we've created a landscape that they they seem to thrive in. Because if we did bring back lynx, for example, or wolves, but certainly lynx, their natural um, kind of prey of choice is roe deer, but it, they would certainly be keen on, on munchak oh, as yeah. well, similar kind of habitat too. Yeah. What about... Um, the Chinese water deer, you told me something that I did, I wasn't too aware of, that although it's invasive here, it's globally threatened. Is that right? Yeah. So ironically, we've got Chinese water deer here, which are those 
fantastic deer with the with the fangs that kind of come down outside of their mouth. Vampire um, deer. <laughs> yeah, but in their, in their native region, they are now of growing concern um, that their population is declining, whereas our population is increasing and they're doing pretty well. So ironically, we've now got an introduced species um, which is becoming of global importance. And it's actually created this kind of ex-situ population that's doing really, really well. And so we're acting almost as an arc for that species. Yeah. So if, if you know, let's say 50, 100 years down the line, they've particularly restored an area for the return of Chinese water deer in its native range, they could come to Britain and take wild deer and just translocate them over there. And while they've been in this ecosystem, are they particularly causing too much damage? Yeah, yeah. Um, other examples, I guess. So we didn't really get into detail, and, and some listeners might not know the full kind of story on grey squirrel, red squirrel debate, and it's, it's a it's a big topic. But essentially, the grey squirrel outcompetes um, the red squirrel by being more fecund, having more offspring, um, being more adaptable to you know, mixed woodland environments and things, and also carries a, a parapox virus um, that the red squirrel um, doesn't have any immunity to. Um, so it kind of displaces them and um, kills them by disease. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they don't coexist side by side. Things then like um, the North American mink, which was a very silly uh, <laughs> intro- deliberate introduction um, by people who meant well, and released mink from fur farms where we were, you know, farming them for their fur um, into the ecosystem to liberate them, very much an animal rights or animal liberation um, decision. Um, And they've caused devastation with uh, kind of natural waterways and and wildlife, in particular the water vole. So it's like our fastest declining mammal species. But one of the things that, again, I didn't realise with North American mink is there also a big threat to their counterpart, the European mink, which is one of the, the fastest declining mammals in Europe, because they outcompete their their cousin, basically their mm-hmm. European cousin. Yeah. So they can have not only effects on kind of their um, the animals, I suppose that they're competing with for that niche, but also on their kind of prey species and things. Yeah. I thought that was quite a, a good example of something that is almost 100% hard to defend. Like, I don't see any beneficial effect of, of North American mink. No, and I think um, I think North American mink is one of those ones that I chuck in with rhododendron and Japanese knotweed, that it, it is very difficult to make a case for them. I think with mink, the only thing you could potentially go down the route of is uh, a healthy river ecosystem with its mix of, you know, beavers and otters and all that kind of stuff. But even then, I think, yeah, mink was a was an absolute disaster. And it's it's one of the ones I would chuck in the very it's pretty indefensible. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um well look, let's go to um the really extreme example that you talked to me about from the book, which is Ascension Island. Um what what's the story with that or what happened there? So this is this is yeah, I, I think it's the first chapter in the book, but it's it's really good at going, I suppose, turning it up to 11 and going full whack with invasive species and the fact that they might actually be beneficial to an environment. So, Sorry to interrupt, just before, before you go into that as an example, what is the kind of um, 
What's the controversial message behind this book, The New Wild? Is it, am I right in saying it's that we really need to rethink things and actually are, are rapidly evolving ecosystems that include new species may be what we need to embrace? Is that the kind of message? Absolutely. So, so the, the tagline really is why invasive species will be nature's salvation. And it argues... Right. That- Quite extreme. Yeah. And uh, I suppose it, uh, we're, we're entering a period now and we, we're, well, we're already in it of mass ecosystem damage and land use change. And now we're entering the frontier of climate change uh-huh. and how that. They're calling it the Anthropocene, right? Exactly. And, and should we try, should we therefore get rid of the species that are doing well? Should we, the species that are coming in here and happily living alongside us, gray squirrels, you know, all, the, all the things we've just spoke about. Should we target nature's survivors or should we be hanging on to those species that are, you know, already struggling and potentially going to struggle even more? Now, you could certainly argue that, you know, nature is all about protecting biodiversity. And I always think there is no arguing with the fact that we have no right to let any species on this planet go extinct. Yeah. Our human, you know, because of our human actions, just from a moral level, I completely agree. Yeah. But in the cold light of day, with the change that's going to happen, with these novel ecosystems that we're creating with urbanization, are we right in demonizing the species that successfully take hold of that? So I'm looking out of my flat window now and I can see ivy leaf flax growing on the walls. I can see buddleia coming out of the walls. I can see um, feral pigeons all around. Now, they're three species that are all technically non-native species, but that buddleia throughout the day is full of butterflies and bees. The same with the toad flax. The feral pigeons are feeding the peregrines that nest here. So yeah. The argument is that as we enter this, or as we are already in this world of mass change and damage that we've done to the ecosystem, where there is arguably no pristine habitat left on the planet, um, should we just have a much more relaxed attitude to the species that can live in that world and will eventually form the new ecosystems of the future, I suppose? I've um, I've ordered this book. And now I'm afraid to read it because it's going to turn everything I know and feel on its head. <laughs> well, that's literally the reason that I read it. And there's certainly some stuff in there that I don't agree with. Um, yeah. But there is a lot that just, you know, I, I would read it and then I would kind of gaze off into the distance. Read it with an open mind. Yeah. And I would just sit there and I would go, yeah, you know, actually, that's that's a really good point. And I, I think especially when it talks about urban landscapes as well, and it argues that is anything native once we've raised an, an, a natural ecosystem to the ground and we've completely tarmacked it and is anything yeah. native to that space or is it ripe for any colonizers no matter whether we've introduced them or not or whether they've come from the surrounding countryside does it matter where they've come from if they're building an ecosystem from scratch yeah well i've got um ringneck parakeets on my balcony most days and I, I have to put my hand up and say, I know they're bad for, you know, native kind of tree dwelling or cavity dwelling birds and even bats and things like that. And they're quite noisy, but they do put a smile on my face <laughs> and I know they feed the local peregrines as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's difficult. And I totally get you like in an urban landscape, all these unnatural colonizers and things they're the ones that we kind of have to admire in terms of their resilience and their adaptability and their kind of um, ingenuity in, in kind of making a life for themselves far away from home, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and that's, 
Yeah. Well, tell us about the um, the the book starting at eleven and, and coming up with this uh, story about Ascension Island. Ascension yeah. Island. So uh, Ascension Island, it's it's in the South Atlantic Ocean. It's not particularly big. It's about twice the size of Manhattan. And um, originally, it was home to uh, home to only a handful of endemic species. So there were a few insects, a few ferns, um, and then a frigate bird. So it was like many islands in you know, the oceans. It was a really good place for breeding seabirds. Yeah, but it was a pretty barren island. There wasn't really much on it. It was first visited in 1508 by the Portuguese. No one settled on it, and the British Navy set up a garrison there in 1815. Um, and when they had people living there, they started bringing things over. So they started bringing fruit trees, started bringing vegetables. So already they're starting to import non-native plants. But it wasn't until 1843 when a British botanist turned up, a chap called Sir Joseph Hooker. He turned up and he had this idea that he wanted to basically terraform Ascension Island. He wanted to green it. So there's this central mountain on it um, that was very barren. But his idea was if he could introduce lots of plants and trees from you know around the world, which was then the British Empire, they could create this artificial cloud forest that would create water, essentially. Um so they made this mass planning, uh, planting regime where they covered the island in trees and the central mountain on Ascension um, was soon really, really verdant green and it became renamed Green Mountain. And by 18, right. 1865, so this is about 20 years later, there's an admiral, uh, admiralty report that states, the island now possessed thickets of up to 40 kinds of trees beside numerous shrubs. And through the spreading of vegetation, water supply is now excellent, and the garrison and ships visiting the island are supplied with an abundance of vegetables. So this artificial cloud forest jungle um, was now holding the water as the water rose up, uh, as the clouds rose up. It was creating clouds yeah. around this mountain and creating rainfall. Nowadays, fast forward to nowadays, there's 300 introduced species of plants on the island, and Green Mountain is now a national park that's home to coffee bushes, vines, monkey puzzle trees, there's jacaranda, juniper, bananas, buddleia, palms, Madagascan periwinkles. And then you've got grazers there. You've got feral sheep, cows, donkeys, which are all grazing the vegetation. You've got canaries and minor birds. You've got pickings all wandering around and living in the foliage. So it's a completely man-made like mishmash of things from all over exactly. the world. It's completely artificial. And the biodiversity of that island is now 90% of it is introduced by people deliberately. Um, now, then you might think, well, what happened to the endemic? species well quite a lot of those endemic species are actually doing all right none of them i think there's maybe one that's gone extinct but none of the ones that are actually alive are particularly doing too bad so the endemic ferns that used to grow on rocks on this windswept island are now growing on big mossy branches of trees that have come from all over the world Um, and the island's native crabs which were the biggest kind of terrestrial animal that they had before people turned up um, now yeah. are eating all this fallen non-native fruit that's coming from all these imported trees. Um, and when you walk around there, you can see that the trees are being eaten by caterpillars and beetles. So you've got this whole ecosystem that was built, well, it started being planted in 1843. So we're talking a couple of hundred years that this ecosystem has been built from scratch and seems to be functioning pretty well. And it challenges this idea, I suppose, that nature doesn't see 
ecosystems perhaps in the way that we see them there's not this climax there's not this natural climax to a particular ecosystem that we think it's not a static yeah process. sometimes things just work and you can throw things together and nature is all about chaos and that chaos is what kickstarts biodiversity and this has proved that in a completely artificial landscape you can create something pretty special now it's at the center of a huge debate and you know if you were you're a pure invasive introduced species versus non-native minds then you would completely get rid of all of this stuff all of this vegetation and you would return the island back to a barren landscape that's home to a couple of insects and some ferns and i suppose then the argument is is which is better one is completely artificial and non-native one is native but has very low biodiversity and it is just this really good extreme example of how an entire ecosystem built of introduced species can actually create something pretty special. And it also raises the um, kind of difficult question, Jack, of like we talked about it at the start, when does a species become native? So, you know, we talk about history and culture and what we've done. This is a case where it's a very much a historic story of how this green mountain arose. Um, And it's an interesting story and it doesn't seem to have had you know, many detrimental effects on that island and, and its ecosystem. But, you know, if something was done 200 years ago and it's caused an issue, it's a problem. But, you know, grey squirrels were introduced in the 1800s. Yeah. Rabbits were introduced far, far, you know, um, earlier. Rabbits aren't seen as a problem here anymore. In fact, they're like totally embraced. So it kind of does come back to that kind of cultural or historic significance of like when things were done or or what, at what point does something become the status quo and then it's naturalized or it's native? Yeah, yeah you de- and, and that that has always fascinated me is that idea of when it becomes okay, I suppose, to have introduced something. And it's a very arbitrary line that we do, that we draw. Um, when was it uh, okay that, you know, poppies were introduced to Britain and or corn cockles, corn cockles, this fantastic flower that we know was introduced by people in the Iron Age, and now we're bemoaning the loss of it and the fact that there's only one field left in the whole of England that you can actually find it growing naturally. But naturally, it was mm. it was never here. It was brought over in the Iron Age. Um, and if you were yeah. a purist, you would want to get rid of it. So, yeah, it's very murky. Yeah. And then there's problematic ones like, for example, we talked about the pine marten. Um, I would see that. I think most most conservationists would see it as a complete success story. It's an important predator, um, and it actually has a very surprisingly beneficial uh, effect of pushing back grey squirrel populations. And what we've seen Ireland being one of the kind of earliest documented examples of this was as we let the pine marten start to re-establish from the west coast of Ireland, where it clung on in small numbers, it pushed back the greys because the greys tend to feed on the ground and are not as agile in trees where the pine marten will hunt squirrels during its natural diet. The red squirrel actually then starts booming in number and coming back following the pine marten across the, from the west of Ireland um, as the as the greys kind of decline. Yeah. But one interesting thing I heard um, Charlie Burrell at NEP talk about was, you know, someone asked him, well, look, you know, pine martens are being reintroduced into England. Um, are you going to reintroduce pine martens at NEP? And he dodged the question um, with a little chuckle and, and said, 
well, you know, we might, but then you might not be coming here for all of our nightingales and turtle doves anymore because your pine martin's going to be clearing those out in, when they're nesting. Um, so even bringing back a really iconic native species that everyone is all for can actually tip the balance on some of the things that we also are really fond of. And then where do you draw the line? Do you just say, okay, we'll, we'll bring it back, but maybe not in areas where it's really important for other things it might have a detrimental effect on. And I think, you know, if we're going to bring it back to England, we're going to see negative effects of having this other predator added into the mix in our already stretched landscapes that are under intense kind of human yeah, pressure. And that, it, it goes back to the the fact that we have a, a broken landscape and even native species, if we're reintroducing them into areas, um, they're going back into an area that isn't subject to the same laws that a natural ecosystem should be or an ecosystem before we had such an effect. And there was a, talking about introductions, actually, that I came across a really interesting um, case study that was talking about whether we would actually introduce non-native species as a response to conserving animals, um, species in the time of climate change. So this yeah. um, project that was done on the marbled white butterfly which is generally, it's oh, generally yeah. a southern species, southern and kind of gets up to the kind of Midlands, but its northernmost natural population in the UK was in North Yorkshire. And in 1999 and 2000, uh, a few of them were caught up in Yorkshire, and these scientists had found a spot in Durham that they thought would be a, a, a suitable site for them. So they caught them up in, uh, in North Yorkshire and they released them in Durham. And that population still persists there now. And the reason they've done this is they they talk, uh, they call it assisted colonization, where yeah. as yeah. the climate warms and as we've seen European species now pushing into Britain, the ones that can you know fly across the water, generally birds and there's some dragonflies and things like that. But because our landscape is so broken, it might not be it's certainly not as easy as it was for species to be able to respond and move because there's not as much suitable habitat in between before they find pockets of connectivity of habitat. Exactly. So could we get to a stage where as the climate warms, there's a, a species of beetle or something that's very sedentary that lives in northern France or central France, and we know it could survive on the south coast, say something like the, the common wall lizard, um, that we would actually introduce into southern England because it could live there and now the climate's changed it's created the perfect habitat for it so there may even be arguments to introduce non-native species on conservation grounds because of the climate change issues that we may now be facing yeah yeah and um it brings up maybe we'll this will get into a whole nother podcast episode so perhaps we'll have you back because <laughs> <laughs> I think we we definitely talk for hours, but let's talk for a, se a second about reintroductions. So bringing back native species that were once here that aren't here now. And again, I think one of the um, big problems or one of the big debates, especially when we start to talk about the real uh, controversial rewilding um, arguments, like bringing back, you know, the real apex predators, wolves, lynx, bear, one of the very sensible counter arguments for doing that, even if morally we should, even if we have a duty to, you know, correct exterminations that we did on, on predators, for example, you know, hundreds of years ago. One of the counter arguments, which is quite sensible and is hard to kind of um, kind of fight against, is we're bringing the back into a landscape potentially that 
well, definitely isn't like it was before, but also is so under strain and we're losing loads of other things. Why would we try and reestablish some of these new species when we're losing the ones we already have? So it kind of creates a bit of a, a moral debate around just because we can, does that mean we should? And also it's very romantic again to say, you know, and uh, you know, I'm a big rewilding fan and I would definitely like to see lynx back in the Scottish Highlands, um, even wolves. You know, I'm, I'm not really, you know, I'm, I suppose, kind of on the fence. I can see both sides of that. But I do think we do have a duty to start bringing back um, some of these predators into landscapes where, where they were before. But then I just think, actually, it's a totally different landscape. We're not talking about, you know, the kind of spaces or um, the kind of expanses of, of land where these animals are going to thrive without coming into contact no, with humans. You're exactly right. I, I, but I think when it comes to reintroductions of once native species, I think some of them, it's, I suppose it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation with they're being brought back into ecosystems that aren't what they were. But by introducing some of those species, you can create those ecosystems. So yeah. if you, you know, yeah. if you were to magically be able to take out all of the landowner disputes in Scotland, which is, you know, obviously the, the main bone of contention. Just a tiny issue there, yeah. But if you, if you were able to remove that and introduce wolves there, you would see that, you know, as we know from the famous Yellowstone example, that wolves back in that yeah. habitat would allow the forest to regenerate. And it's the, you know, it's the same with beavers. Beavers create habitat that beavers like, which is then fantastic for lots of other wetland things. But there are definitely uh, issues with, yeah, with just saying, oh, you know, these things were here, so we should just bring them back. And when you think about it, when you look at a map of the UK and you think of the areas where a lynx or at least viable populations of lynx and wolves could live, you're now talking about a very small area. Yeah. The remote Scottish yeah, Highlands. Potentially basically. areas like Kielder Forest, which we've spoken about. For but yeah. they are you know, yeah. small areas. Yeah. So look, I um, thought about this podcast and where we go, and I knew we would be just basically going off on tangents left, right and centre. But um where do we finish was the question on my on my lips. Um, maybe it's, um, did you have any kind of key takeaways from reading that book and just re-examining your attitude as a conservationist, as a naturalist to what is an invasive species and is it ultimately wrong or is it like this natural, unnatural process that we're in now and we should be embracing it? What were your kind of final thoughts after putting that book down and um, what what would you say maybe to um, conservationists who are, you know, completely opposed to keep it everything natural and we need to eradicate things that, that we brought yeah. here, um, apart from read the book? <laughs> uh, well, absolutely. I think um, the two the two things I, I took away from it, really, one of them is, I think, quite simple and what many people do already, and that's to evaluate each species on a case-by-case basis. And I think lots of us subconsciously do that. Just lots of us like mandarin ducks. And lots of us don't like American mink, um, and that's because we're yeah. subconsciously weighing up the, you know, that we know of the fact that one of them doesn't really have any negatives and one of them does. Um, but I think it, I think it's broadening that out and not immediately assuming that because something is not native, that it's bad. So um, I once did a uh, an Instagram story. It was a bit of a joke, and it was the fact that I had bought some English bluebell bulbs 
from a um, supplier to plant in my window boxes and one of them had flowered and they were Spanish bluebell bulbs. So I did an Instagram story where I had a bit of a, a, horror, a, horror, right? a, a, bit of a rant at this Spanish bluebell. And um, this, this guy got in touch with me and uh, he said, what's wrong with the Spanish one? He said, does it have less, does it produce less pollen than the native one? Do pollinators not like it as much? I said, no. And he said, well, why don't you like it? And I sat there and I thought, you've got a point. I said, does, and I suppose it's the whole, you know, we mentioned, does nature care about the color of our squirrels? Does nature care about whether our bluebells are English ones or Spanish ones? I care about them because I like English ones. I like the way they look. Um, They're part of our natural history, but you know, a bee might not care. So I think it's looking, the, the book and, and just this whole debate, I think it's reevaluating everything on a case-by-case basis and perhaps realizing that if you are making these decisions on, you know, whether you're going to uh, want a species gone or whether you're going to want to control it or whatever, recognizing that actually that's a lot more of a human decision than it might be a natural decision. And we're not, yeah. we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that we are protecting anything pristine anymore certainly not in britain we're not there is no thing that we're that we're trying to protect that is anything like it was in the past if there are it's the tiny fragments left of areas like abernethy forest or things like that but we're not trying to protect this holy grail of pristine land that that we're hanging on to we are entering a world we are in a world where these novel ecosystems are all around us and should we be kicking out the species that can survive in those ecosystems when so many of our species can't? Yeah, I think that is a great place to end because it's such a a tricky topic. And as you say, there's so many gray areas in it, but um, I think that kind of mind shift maybe is needed. And also I think it can be helpful because I don't know about you, but virtually everyone I've talked to on this podcast has a degree of eco-anxiety about how we're screwing everything up so bad. And actually, it's quite an optimistic message. It might not be right in all cases for every you know, species, as you say, case by case, but it is quite an optimistic message to say a little bit of acceptance that actually the version of nature that we have right now is massively um, degraded and, and different from what we had 100, 500, 2000 years ago. Um, and actually allowing a, a little bit of that anxiety to go about what lives, what dies, what should be here, what shouldn't be here, um, might not be a bad thing for all of our mental yeah, states think, and well-being. I think you're right. I think it's quite, it, it, it's, it is a message of hope and it's quite liberating that nature, we know, has the tools to live alongside us if we let it. Um, and some of those most successful species at living alongside us are the species that will arrive either accidentally or from on-purpose introductions. Um, yeah. Maybe it's just letting them letting them guide us into this into this new novel world of ecosystems that that are being built in our very artificial landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, look, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you. It's a really, really interesting topic, and um, I'm sure we'll uh, discuss it more if we meet again in person at some point. But um, for now, I'm asking quite a few of my my guests to uh, this same question, which is, we've met on Instagram, obviously, but would you have any recommendations for um, interesting people to follow um, that are in the world of conservation or ecology or nature 
um, that have great social media accounts that you'd suggest people follow. So maybe your your top oh. three recommendations. And I normally use these as inspo for next webinar or next uh, podcast guest oh, as well. That's, um, so, Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's one there's one that jumps. We're gonna I suppose we're gonna turn it up from eleven to maybe twenty. Um, there's there's one. Okay. So one of the interest the the things I'm interested in as well when we talk about these conservation uh, kind of murky topics is um, trophy hunting which I find absolutely abhorrent, but I'm interested in the in the conservation benefits. And there's a guy who's recently been getting a, a lot of, there's been big debates, a lot of hate on Twitter for a guy called Professor Adam Hart, who oh, yeah. he, he is very good at arguing, not arguing, but showing in the cold light of day the economic benefits of this, like I say, absolutely abhorrent that I can't put my head my mind into the space of someone who would do it but in conservation terms it does kind of work so uh, I think yeah. if you're looking to broaden those kind of viewpoints then I think he's a really good person to follow I'm trying to think if there's anyone that's kind of pertinent to this topic that we spoke about but I'm not really sure there is I mean there's people out there uh, there's the more than weeds people that do i think it's sophie leguil i think her name is um and she, she celebrates yes. yeah. uh you know any kind of plant that's growing in urban areas and she's really good for highlighting uh, naturalized species that you can find on any pavement and, and that's really good i suppose for for this kind of novel species debate that we're topic covering um but i don't maybe i need to be the the non-native species person uh, because I'm trying to think yeah. about anyone who's out there really talking about this. Unfortunately, wrote the book. I don't think he's fine. You've put your head above right. the parapet now, Jack. You could be. Uh, you're regretting this in a while. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think yeah, we'll. Cool. They're good suggestions. Well, look. Thanks again so much for coming on. Um, it's been really good chatting to you. Thank you very much. No, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. I'd love to come back and talk about some more things because. It's been great. Good stuff. Well, look, um, with that, uh, we'll let Jack go and um, thank him again. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. Uh, we are releasing episodes weekly on Fridays at around midday. Sometimes I might be a little bit late on that, but Fridays uh, in general. Um, when we come to, we're nearing the end of season three, believe it or not, and I'm thinking of taking a slight break, but um, you can get in touch with me on any social media platforms mostly on there is at that vet sean or you can get in touch through ealing wildlife group and i would be really interested to hear in any topics that you'd like to hear more episodes on um any guests as i said to jack suggestions always open to who i should have on an interview um and i hope you are enjoying sean's wildlife podcast so far if you are enjoying it and you wanted to contribute to any of the costs involved you can do so via the patreon link in the show notes and uh, for this it's over and out and thanks again to jack Adams. jack where can people um learn more about you or follow you on social media what are, what's your handle on instagram um, instagram it's uh ja badams and on uh, twitter it's jack badams brill okay thanks again thank you very much have a good evening yeah you too bye everyone